on the relative importance of death. So I've called the first part of this the civic state and the common good. The civic state is a natural entity that has conventional properties. That is to say, all human beings associate in groups and seek to achieve a common good, even if they may self-organize in various ways, from the family to the clan to the nation or the nation state, the city or the nation state. The collective government of any people has the basic responsibility to safeguard and nurture the common good, which entails the promotion of a range of particular goods from mere physical utilities like water and electricity or the defense of the family as the first cell of society to various forms of education, the encouragement of work and participation in the market, the cultivation of the university and the arts, and the protection and promotion of healthy and true religious practices. However, most fundamental of all is the state's obligation to protect human life, since this is the most basic good in civic society without which all the others erode. This is why there is a basic right to life from conception to natural death, and accordingly, any culture must have some form of collective policing against crime and violence so as to protect human life, and the state has the right to punish crimes against life. It may also organize from its citizens a military to protect the civic populace by means of just war, even if the latter may only be warranted in rare cases. Evidently, in the face of a collective health crisis such as that posed by COVID-19, many public goods are put in jeopardy. The first of these is bodily life and health, since the illness seems approximately five times more deadly than the average annual influenza and can affect, in particular, vulnerable elderly population groups and those with various pre-existing medical conditions. Nevertheless, other goods are at stake as well, including the right to work, the economic well-being of societies, the ongoing work of education, freedom of movement and self-expression, and the public gathering for the worship of God. Christians may wonder to what extent the modern constitutional secular state is capable of safeguarding rightly any or all of these particular goods. It's fair to acknowledge the possibility of skepticism. After all, one might argue, what good is a state that is unable to protect innocent human life in a key instance by toleration of abortion and that increasingly refuses to recognize the centrality of religious freedom and its right exercise for the good of the state in question. I might note, this is a general statement. It might apply differently in some countries than others. Obviously, you can think of a, a cases of countries where there's less religious freedom, more negligence towards human life, and so forth. You can problematize civic governments by example. Here, however, two observations should be made immediately that impact one's reflection on the topic. First, we should note that due to our collective nature as interdependent rational animals, it must be admitted that only through some form of state means can any of these goods rightly be defended. In other words, there is only ever a political solution to questions like how many public health regulations should be imposed or whether educational institutions should meet online. One might differ with the government's current decree in Italy, perhaps prudentially, but it has to be some, there has to be some kind of 
political process in which to deliberate. In our context, natural governments will play an irreplaceable role in this process, no matter how intensive or how restrained. Second, governments certainly can and do err seriously and often in the promotion of human rights, like the right of life, and in the safeguarding of the public good. But they do not err in all respects at all times, since governments, like human persons after the fall more generally, are wounded but not radically depraved. As Aquinas notes in Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae Question 92, Article 2, or excuse me, 94, Article 2, there are basic inclinations that remain in us even after the fall toward the collective protection of human life, the love of sexuality and reproduction, the love and education of children, the pursuit of justice and friendship in society, and the promotion of the search for the truth and even the knowledge of God. These inclinations may be weakened, but there is, and there is terrible ignorance about their application and implications in all instances, but civic governments cannot fully evade its a civic government cannot fully evade its obligation to be at their service, the service of these basic inclinations, and indeed states only ever succeed to the extent that they remain at this at their service in some regard. So now I turn to a second related point. So it's a somewhat associative paper, but I hope you'll see the associations. The hierarchy of goods has an anthropological basis. So the state is obliged to promote human flourishing, but what is human flourishing? In the end, the determination of the answer to this question always depends on one's understanding of human nature. There is, in effect, an implicit philosophy of the human person behind every political principle or public policy, and often in modern culture, there is a weaving of various philosophical intuitions and traditions at play in public culture, often in competitive ways or incoherent modes. The mainstream Catholic philosophical and natural law tradition rightly insists on a hierarchy among human activities and goods pursued without a positing an opposition between them or a pure reduction of one to another. For example, the pursuit of nutrition and clean drinking water for a given community is a priority only in the fundamental sense. Without it, one cannot exist. But while these goods are prior in the order of basic need or of genetic development, you might say, they are subsequent in the order of perfection. The human being does not live for bread alone. To make this common sense claim, however, one must then appeal to a coherent set of higher activities that characterize human flourishing, such as the pursuit of truth and contemplation, the love of virtuous friendship, the cherishing of children and family life, the pursuit of justice in society, the role of artistic and te technical creativity, the pursuit of union with God by way of knowledge and love of God. All these activities imply rationality and deliberative love, which are characteristic of the human person precisely due to his or her immaterial faculties of intellect and will, themselves indicative of a spiritual principle in persons that is traditionally called the soul. The goods of the animal body, which include nourishment, protection of human life, we could call it human health, 
uh, an animal good in that respect, human sexual coupling and reproduction, medical treatments of the body, all of these have their specifically human modality in virtue of human rationality and freedom. Therefore, they are only ever pursued rightly as human activities of reason and free responsibility. And insofar as this is the case, they all inevitably have artistic and ethical dimensions to them. Even if eating is the most basic activity of an animal, every human meal is an artistic and ethical activity, the work of a rational animal with a spiritual soul. This matters in our context for the following reason. When the civic society seeks to protect vulnerable persons from a disease by way of quarantine or public health measures, it does so principally in view of the human dignity of those persons, a dignity accrued in virtue principally of the human spiritual soul. Other animals deserve some consideration of the civic state. It might even include... um, ecological protection. It could certainly include agricultural production and safeguarding from excessive cruelty. But they don't come under the law of the civic state in the same way as human animals or for the same ends. Human bodies are protected because they are the bodies of persons who have human dignity in both body and soul. And these two principles of body and soul are consubstantial or co-substantial in each person. I am not merely my body or my soul, but always only a composite substance composed of each. However, we can extend this same reflection about the importance of the human body in view of further conclusions. If the state seeks to protect the human body, it does so only ever in view of a more ultimate flourishing of the whole human person for the sake of a civic society that promotes the free pursuit of many spiritual goods mentioned above. Public health measures are themselves measured in turn from above, so to speak, with reverence to higher goods that must always be kept in mind and in some way respected. For example, if a strict temporary quarantine is undertaken, it must be done in order to protect a large set of goods that one seeks to defend. One protects the society from disease in view of a healthy economy, a system of education, society of public activities, friendships, marriages, and spiritual activities. This would seem to go without saying, but there are ways that the relations between these various goods can easily become frayed if the society is insufficiently sensitive to the higher goods of reason. Even when it is protecting human life, there are higher goods that a state must not deny. So even if the good of public health is absolutely fundamental and the right of the state to protect human life is absolutely fundamental and falls within their domain, there are other goods that cannot be neglected. Examples include the right to worship, the right to marriage, the right to pursue education, the right to work and gain a living, some reasonable freedom of movement, the pursuit of psychological health through various forms of leisure, and the freedom of public debate with regard to social norms. In a public health crisis, the ways we pursue these goods can be altered temporarily, perhaps in an enduring fashion. That is a prudential question. But to the extent that the alterations threaten to radically alter the long-term pursuit of these other goods, the new policies by that very fact become increasingly disputable. 
For example, during the past year, some cities or states, and even some countries as a, as a whole, have banned the possibility of public worship in indefinite fashion for as long as seven months. Some nations have banned the possibility of church weddings, even with very limited congregation size, effectively making church weddings impossible. Millions of people are, of course, affected directly by unemployment due to changes in business openings, in part due to government regulations. Million of, millions of young students are affected by changes uh, to the online educational system, and we should add also their parents are often, if they're younger, their parents are greatly affected. And in some cases, they have their educational opportunities severely upended. Elderly population groups in assisted living are often forbidden by their institutions to have any outside visitors, including immediate family members, even for months, and are thereby condemned to prolonged solitude. Those in hospitals, including the dying, are often forbidden any visitors or even the right to a visit from a priest or religious official to offer them sacramental or spiritual consolation in the potential face of death. And I can assure you, simply from the American point of view, this has become very common. So people are dying alone without their family or the right to even see a priest. In some of those people with COVID, many of them without it. All of these cases present us with ethical dilemmas, and some of the decisions represented are more evidently dubious or erroneous, however, however well motivated they may be. And intelligent people who think a lot about the issues can come to differing uh, opinions of, of prudence, obviously, because it's so complicated. As I will note below, the, in a moment, the religious orientations of human freedom are, however, irreducibly primary, and they should cover all the rest in how we evaluate everything even when we deliberate about civic prudence in regard to the lesser spiritual or corporeal goods just mentioned. When we understand the dignity of our spiritual nature, our freedom, and our destiny with God, inevitably we gain perspective on what we should be living for, even in the more ordinary of instances. And I'm implicitly suggesting there's no metaphysical neutrality possible so that while we might agree with our secular confreres about many public goods and even their higher priority, like you know, sustaining families and work in universities, and that's why we're doing all the public health measures, the fact of the matter is there always is some ultimate calculation based on the teleological end of human existence. I don't say that to say we cannot accommodate a primarily secular set of categories. I think we can, but it, it can't just be presumed that they can be elided. So I turn to a third part. The primacy of the spiritual and the obligations of the church. What should we say about the obligations of the church and her personnel under the current conditions of COVID-19? First, the church does have an obligation to respect the health of the human body and its well-being. It is not possible under the pretext of an appeal to the spiritual life or primacy of the sacramental economy merely to ignore widespread risks to human persons and their bodily health in an ep epidemic context. Furthermore, Catholic bishops have the right, within prudential reason, to alter the ways and circumstances that the sacraments are celebrated uh, in view of the bodily health of vulnerable persons. And this has been done before in epidemics, and there are clear precedents in the tradition 
even up to the temporary suspension of public masses. And I give a, um, you know, a, a link there to a, an article on this subject I've written that details some clear examples and the larger argument about the bishop's uh, responsibilities and rights with regards to the, expression, the uh, public celebration of the sacraments. That being said, the church, even more than the state, is responsible for the spiritual good of the human community and must recall the primacy of the spiritual to Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Concretely, the church insists rightly on the importance of spiritual health as more important than bodily health without, of course, ever opposing the two. She also insists on the importance of the life of grace and charity as the highest good of the soul which orders the human person towards eternal life with God. In this context, the sacramental economy is a most essential means by which to enter into and sustain the life of grace. Baptism communicates grace to the recipient and places the person in a state of potential friendship with God, deputizing them, so to speak, to celebrate the other sacraments. Penitential confession communicates the forgiveness of sins and the restoration and strengthening of the life of faith, hope, and charity. The Eucharist nourishes this life and can augment participation in charity in the life of the soul. Anointing of the sick provides those suffering due to illness with augmented spiritual strength so as to endure the spiritual trials of sickness even in the face of death. These examples are pertinent to life during a widespread pandemic because they signal essential means of salvation and sanctification that the church can and must provide so as to rightly respond to the needs of human persons in light of their supernatural destiny. In Summa Theologiae Secunda Secundae question 26, this is in the area of the Summa on Charity, Thomas Aquinas considers the so-called order of charity, a consideration of who is loved by greater primacy in the order of grace and the ways that natural loves are inwardly sanctified by the life of grace. So for example, should a father of a family love his children by charity in Christ more than the children of strangers? It's obviously natural. Is it also supernatural? And Aquinas says it is, but you know, I won't go into that example. I'll tell you other ones. He asks therein whether the Christian should love another person, any other person, by charity more than himself, and answers by making a significant distinction. Each person should love God first above all things, and his own soul second, especially insofar as each person should wish for themselves eventual union with God, union with God, and do nothing to forfeit this orientation of divine love in himself. In this sense, the love of self follows from the love of God in grace. You might say we truly love ourselves in what we are, but we do so always with reference to the fact that we are made from God, of God, for God, unto God. And the life of one's own soul is to be preferred to the love of one's neighbor. You might say that we should will the salvation of our neighbor's soul as a primary good insofar as we can, but we can never have the responsibility for their happiness with God that we must have with regards to our own happiness with God. Otherwise said, we cannot venture into sin so as to jeopardize our friendship with God out of misbegotten solidarity with our neighbor. At the same time, Aquinas claims that we should love our neighbor's soul more than our own body, and in this regard we can rightfully lay down our lives and our bodily health or possessions 
if this is an advantage to the eternal salvation of our neighbor. He doesn't say you have to lay down your life in order to keep your business open. I'm not, I'm not going that direction, okay? I'm just noting there are some things you can give your life for, for the sake of your neighbor. Here one may think of martyrs who witness publicly to Christ by the shedding of their blood, or of chaplains during times of epidemic or war who give their lives in the service of the sick or the dying. Aquinas thinks these are warranted, defensible acts of charity and may be heroic insofar as charity moves a person to act beyond the natural mean of justice or friendship according to a higher standard of divine love. Let us gloss over briefly the question of heroic Christian action and what is required of diverse persons in circumstances and states of life, and I will return to that in a moment. Instead, first, we can simply draw out Aquinas' analysis of two universal principles that would seem to bear on the question of how the church must confront the challenge of ministering in a time when COVID-19 is prevalent. The first is that the spiritual health of the soul must remain a priority, especially in the exercise of the sacramental economy. This follows from the idea that the soul must be loved more than the body, and that one's own relation to God must continue even when there are those who would alter their observance of the sacramental life for reasons of natural fear. This is not to say, this is not to say that the sacraments can in no way be altered in their exercise, as indeed I've argued elsewhere that they can. But it does mean that they need to be widely available, including in circumstances that could prove more challenging for reasons of public safety. For example, baptism and confession are fundamental sacraments necessary to convey the life of grace or to restore it. It is neither just nor permissible for a diocese to issue a complete suspension of these sacraments. And alas, that has happened. Likewise, those who are dying or gravely ill, including those who have COVID-19, should be visited and have the right to receive sacraments of anointing, penitential confession, and communion. The latter visitations of people with coronavirus require careful procedures, but they certainly can be done, and local churches increasingly have experience of how to do so perfectly safely. In countries in which medical supplies are lacking, it should be a a priority of the church to obtain materials necessary for ministers that they might visit the sick effectively and safely. Likewise, couples have a right to be married, even in the midst of an epidemic, and even if they must have a reduced number of attendants, they cannot be denied the right to wed sacramentally or delayed in an inordinate way. More generally, the faithful should have some access to the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, whenever possible, access to the holy sacrifice of the Mass and communion, even if they might not take communion at various times during increased periods of risk. Second, at least some people need to be deputized for the office of providing for the sacramental care of others at the risk of their own bodily life for the purposes of the care of souls and as a public witness to charity. The Christian witness has to take account of circumstances, and some circumstances require the tendency toward heroic virtue if the church wishes to maintain a firm witness to divine love and the primacy of the spiritual. It may be reasonable to depute younger clergy and religious into domains where epidemic effects are greater so as to safeguard the elderly religious and clergy 
and one can adopt best practices of sanitation for the prevention of illness, for example, in the celebration of the Mass. However, it is imperative that these measures not interrupt per se the possibility of the celebration of the sacraments. It is possible, in effect, to suspend public celebration of Masses in particular times and places for a limited time in view of discernible goals. However, the longer such a public health crisis endures, the greater the risk that the situation begin to affect not only the bodies of human beings, but also their long-term spiritual health, the state of their souls. A Christian populace that goes too long without the regular frequenting of the sacraments is a populace that will become spiritually emaciated and ill in soul. We may think here of the delicate prudential question of the requirement or obligation of worship on Sunday, which stems from the Decalogue itself as read in a Christian way in light of the resurrection, transferred from the Sabbath to the first day of the week. The norm of Sunday worship is not a human convention, but a divine precept with a natural foundation in the virtue of religion and a supernatural foundation in the virtue of charity. The human person has a natural obligation to honor and worship God in a public as well as an individual way, and the baptized Christian has a supernatural calling to acknowledge Christ in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. If this practice is suspended temporarily for the reasons of the protection of human life, which it can be in various times and places, it must be reinstated when as, as soon as it is practically feasible. The prudential discernment on this matter can be difficult, admittedly. However, one could arguably distinguish here between those who are less threatened by COVID-19 who can be asked under ordinary circumstances to att attend mass regularly with spatial distancing and masks and whatnot, and those who are more greatly threatened by the disease who could either be used personal judgment or receive individual dispensations from pastors. Meanwhile, even in the suspension of attendance at public celebration of the Mass on Sundays, the faithful ought to be led by clergy in the regular practice of safeguarding Sunday worship, either privately at home in a structured way, not simply by a subjective sincerity, but in some kind of way delegated by the church, or in individual visits to open churches. These reflections are timely only because there are new waves of COVID-19 spreading throughout the world and re-emergent in Europe, and the disease may be with the human race for some time to come, with only limited relief provided by a vaccine. It's not obvious that a vaccine is going to change all our public habits uh, or create conditions in which we don't have to be intentional because all the problems will be removed. So we have to think in the long term. If this is the case, it is, then it is something, I mean, currently the, the situation we are in is something God has willed to permit, at least, as Father Bonino said last conference. And in such circumstances, it's also the will of God that the church learn to bear witness to Christ in a holy, robust, and adequate way in this new time of challenge in season and out of season. So having made some, I'd say, stronger comments about the church, I want to turn to some more prudential comments about the civic order in this, uh, in this last section. Prudence, well, it's, I think the second last section, but prudence and the ultimate common good. We should recall in this context that when COVID-19 broke out initially, there were seven, several reasons given for enacting a very strict quarantine, some of which were unique to that time. 
Among those, the ones unique to that time, were the following. First, there was less knowledge of what illness we were dealing with and how deadly the illness was and how fast it might spread. And it is prudent in such circumstances to be very cautious. Second, hospitals were not adequately prepared for this type of disease and were being overwhelmed. This was certainly true in various European countries. Third, medical uh, personnel who lacked the right equipment of protection were dying in significant numbers. Fourth, there was less knowledge of how to treat the illness and save those who had worse cases. And therefore, if one slowed down the spread, there would be time to figure out optimal ways to treat the illness. This is what in American parlance was called flattening the curve, presuming there would be continued hospitalizations, but we would make them manageable to give it there so there would be time for finding the best practices. Fifth, there was a reasonable hope at the start, given the examples of countries like South Korea, of containing the spread of the illness. And some places like Norway and New Zealand have in fact managed something of this sort even in a prolonged way. Sixth, population groups that were more at risk, such as those in hospitals or nursing homes, could be protected better if new measures were put in place to protect them, measures that took time to enact. And you could, you could add to such a list concerns proper to the first outbreak. However, as the crisis of COVID-19 continues, many of these challenges have been resolved or developed in positive ways. There is greater knowledge of the illness and how it works, better methods to treat cases and protect medical workers. Medical infrastructure is suitable to treat pa patients, at least currently in most cases, at least in many uh, countries that enacted quarantines previously. Vulnerable persons and institutions have had time to set down well thought, thought out safeguarding procedures. You are a living example today. At the same time, however, threats to other sections of public well-being multiply. The threat to human work and material well-being of families from a stalled or slowed economy, massive unemployment. The threat to public education from a diminished presence of young people in schools and institutions of higher learning. And the increasing threats to mental health that arise for many due to prolonged isolation. And professional psychologists are writing studies on this showing that this is a very significant aspect. Enclosure, repeated quarantine enforcement, or excessive restriction on personal liberties have had immense tolls, especially on younger generations. The longer the crisis continues, the more these other factors must be taken into account in addition, not in exclusion, in addition to the higher spiritual well-being of the person that comes from their contemplative and uh, religious life that is upheld above all by the practices of regular sacramental worship. This suggests that as long as the crisis continues, and especially if it will endure for years, it becomes incumbent on the human community to think prudently about the hierarchy and priority of goods so as to maintain a balanced sense of human flourishing. This balanced prudential perspective should seek to safeguard bodily health, to be sure. I am not trying to negate that in any way. But not to the exclusion of other essential goods that are of more ultimate importance and that must be reasserted over time as a key dimension of a life well lived in view of the spiritual flourishing of the human person. This is true even when we live constantly in the face of the threat of death, as indeed we all do or always have done, though we feel it more acutely in this historical moment. 
The Canadian philosopher Charles DeConnick wrote a famous work in the mid-20th century entitled On the Primacy of the Common Good, in which he implicitly took issue with Jack Maritain's political conceptions. Maritain had argued in the face of 20th century totalitarian governments that the human person transcends the common good of the state and cannot be instrumentalized uniquely in view of that good or submitted to it in such a way as to obscure the dignity of personal freedom and the individual's intellectual call to acknowledge larger truths about God and humanity that transcend the competence of the state. So he was trying to articulate a kind of Thomistic theory for individual rights in the face of totalitarian governments. DeConnick was concerned that this way of framing the issue risked to posit an unhelpful opposition of individual personal freedom for the truth against the notion of the common good. And I think we do see this today. This is how many people are framing the COVID political debate as individual freedoms over and against the, the, the uh, activities of the state and then the prudence about that. As DeConnick rightly noted, the common good that is of ultimate consequence for Aquinas is not the nation state but God and then a series of lesser common goods that descend therefrom, the church, the communion of saints, the cosmos, the human race, and within the human race, the various nation states that comprise the collective life of peoples. There are many common goods, some more ultimate than others. From this perspective, the individual person does have rights that must stand against the claims of the state or that the latter cannot ignore. But we should not characterize this way of thinking in an all-too-individualistic way. One person can and must, at times, defy the state for the protection of an aim of the greater good in the face, for example, of mid-20th century totalitarian governments. Yes. But as DeConnick notes, this is, in fact, always for a more ultimate common good, participation in the common good of the whole human race in the communion of saints in life with God. This point is significant for our purposes because it suggests that when we deliberate about how the church, the state, various institutions, and all individuals should navigate the crisis of COVID-19, we are in fact deliberating about what ultimate good, common good, we belong to as a collective people and how we might best participate in this collective life in a prudent manner. Yes, we are called to protect our own bodily life and that of others, but we're also inclined by nature to participate in communities of friendship and extended family life, truth-seeking, meaningful work and gainful employment, liturgy, and contemplation. The destiny of the human community is not for this life only, but also oriented beyond this life toward the communion of saints. Our destiny of a life with God is not meant to become an occasion of negligence towards our physical well-being, but it is meant to act as a protection against various forms of facile compliance in a life lived only for physical purposes. The greatness of the human person and the community of persons stems from their orientation towards transcendent truth, goodness, and beauty found ultimately in God, but also possessed in various ways by the human community and the church's communion. Consequently, even in a pandemic, our activity should be motivated reasonably by the desire for divine truth, goodness, and beauty, even in the ways we negotiate the protection of the vulnerable and the safeguarding of bodily health. 
We should do it for God. We should do it for love of the human community. We should do it for the beauty of our own common body politic as a nation state or as a local community. To say all this is to say that life and death in the body are important, but they are only relatively important. For in the words of the letter to the Hebrews, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And as Augustine points out in the City of God, Book 10, the sacrifice of the Mass is ultimately oriented toward our participation in the City of God. Where do these conclusions all lead us? Well, they're meant to lead us toward a call for balance and realism. We cannot overcome death in every instance, and while we should manage our public health crisis as best we can with all the medical science and technology that we have, we also need to grant due recognition to other goods. Doing so pertains not merely or even primarily to issues of personal individual freedom, but to a deeper question, what are we as human beings? And what should we live for, even when we are confronted with our own mortality? We all have to answer that question, ultimately. And increasingly, we have to realize as a public community that we have obligations to one another that transcend the constraints of death, obligations for public goods higher than physical well-being, those pertaining to the life and communion of the human spirit in this world and in the world to come. The church and the state, each in their own way, must both recognize these goods, even now, and perhaps especially now, more than ever. Thank you very much. Grazie per la relazione. Mi chiedevo che questa impostazione molto chiara non cessa però di essere un'impostazione teoretica in qualche modo. Ed essendo teoretica eh, di fatto si scontra o comunque diciamo, deve venire a patti con la situazione pratica della vita. No? C'è una scala di responsabilità, evidentemente i pastori hanno più responsabilità dei fedeli, eccetera. No? Al tempo stesso non tutte le cose che sono state alla luce di Tommaso indicate possono essere messe in pratica dai pastori, perché questo indicherebbe anche entrare a volte in conflitto con le autorità costituite. Allora questo implica un altro ordine di questioni morali, cioè il bene comune della società nel suo insieme, e il bene comune dell'armonia fra le parti, cioè sono tutte cose che secondo me arricchiscono il quadro e che devono essere tenute presenti. La Chiesa Cattolica poteva, nella situazione in cui ci dicevano di chiudere le chiese, scendere in piazza, ma non lo ha fatto. L'Eglise aurait pu descendre dans la rue, ma non l'ha pas fait, pour rispettare l'État. Cioè, non lo ha fatto perché aveva anche un, ardo, un altro ordine di bene comune, che era quello di di cercare la via media, la via più possibile in queste situazioni. Quindi voglio dire che questo impianto 
è molto bello, però ha una collocazione, una, una collocazione teoretica che deve essere poi mediata, credo, con la situazione normale nel quale sia i singoli che le comunità si trovano a interagire. Tutto qui. I mean, I, I don't think it's, I mean, I'm not sure, it's theoretical, but I, I mean, obviously, the I, I'm defending the principles. The applications are prudential, and they depend on circumstances. You said that the church did not go into the street to protest, but the church did go into the street uh, a month ago in San Francisco, and the, the archbishop led the people of San Francisco in an illegal public procession. Why? because the mayor of San Francisco made it illegal to have Catholic mass, only Catholic mass, no, Protest no Protestant service was made illegal, for now it's been seven months. And this was a political action to, to please some people in the community. It was, the situation was employed politically, specifically against the church. In China, it has been illegal to go to church in any way, shape, or form for a very long time during the COVID episode. So, I mean, you have cases where, I'm not, I, am not, I am not advocating civil disobedience, okay? I'm not advocating civil disobedience. But I am um, thinking as an American about the um, role of public participation. So that is a sensibility that is different in different contexts, politically, and even not just politically or legally, but psychologically, culturally. So, for example, in France, a protestation is a more normal convention. Uh, in America, a little less so, and maybe less so in other places. Uh, I'm not really advocating anything like that, but I think that that's not necessarily... Uh, I mean, if, if I were pressed on the point, I wouldn't say protestation is impossible. I mean, there are Jewish communities in America who've been protesting because the mayor of New York has been very uh, severe with the Orthodox Jewish community and has tried to make a lot of their gatherings illegal. Well, it's a hard question. They have a different moral calculus than the Catholic Church. We want to respect the religious freedom of the Jewish minority. The mayor of New York does not have that kind of respect, or at least he has a different judgment. So when the Jewish population protested, the Archbishop of New York recently defended their right to gather in, pub in wor public worship because he felt there was a, a failure of the government to allow an exception for the, the prudence of the Jewish community. It's very interesting. They have a different prudence than us, but the Archbishop of New York wanted to, the state to protect their prudence. So, you know, these are difficult questions. I don't know that protest is always wrong, but I do think the act of political process where we debate publicly and can argue with our fellow members of the nation state, have discussions and talk with our governments and also make elections. I mean, I think that is absolutely legitimate. Um, and so I can understand why, for example, in the United States, it's just a different example I know better, 50 states have different laws about COVID. We have 50 different laws, okay, for each government, each local state. And a lot of it is based on local politics and the sensibility of each local population. And it, it's affected through deliberations, through democracy and argument and elections. So 
it's a very different dynamic. Um, I, I, I'm not favoring that kind of government. I don't necessarily think it's superior to the collective decisions of the nation of France or Italy, but I, I just think that the, the church has to navigate, at the church and Catholic citizens have to navigate this question in very different political terrains. I'm fully in support of obeying the state, unless it tries to suppress the right of public worship. I think if the state begins to suppress the right of public worship, then I think the church has obligations to act. And that's a prudential question, too. When is that happening? And so forth. Thanks, Father. I just have one question, a theoretical question. How, how do you argue against Jacques Maritain to sustain um, de Conag, to say that the common good is um, more important than the good of the person against Maritain? That's a great question. I wouldn't oppose the two. So I think, I think what Maritain has a basic insight, that the person's dignity transcends the nation state. It was the fundamental argument of the first encyclical of John Paul II, Redemptor Ominis, where he argued vis-a-vis, -vis, I think, the, the situation in the Soviet Union, that's a context, that the human individual dignity transcends the state and cannot be instrumentalized or suppressed. So I, I think that that is a kind of Maritanian idea that came into the magisterium. However, I think the Deconic gives a even better justification for it by arguing that human persons only ever flourish ultimately in communion or in communities. And so you can only transcend one lower common good to belong to a higher one. So for example, individual protest or the protest of minority groups, they have to take account of the fact that they all belong to a larger common good, which is the state. And so you can't have, you can't have there are certain forms of individualism or sectarian behavior that could endanger the common good. Right? So individualism without, the individual person without reference to a common good is, is dangerous. However, individual communities also, individual persons also relate to higher common goods, like the way they relate to the, the body politic of the chosen people or the body politic of the church with God. So it's never the common good against persons. It's always the human person flourishing in a common good. That's, I think, the Connick's vision. And that's the way I would try to answer the, the question. In the uh, conclusion of your talk, you talked about the higher goods and the responsibility for the church and the state to address these higher goods in this world and in the world to come. So my question is, how does the secular state address what happens after death? We know how the church would do it, but what is the responsibility of the state to even address that question? I'd say it's modest, but it has, there has to be some. I mean, you know, Leo XIII made, I think, a, a permanent contribution to the church's thinking by under, underlining that the, the state does not have competence over the matters that pertain to divine revelation. However, you don't want to go so far in that direction that you say divine revelation is, and Christian identity is something purely alien to the state so that we are just acting in a uh, unintelligible way. Right? So you, you need some natural platform, and it really has to do with natural knowledge of God, or 
and it has to do with natural knowledge of God and, and natural openness to the love and worship of God in, in terms of human anthropology. The, the minimum, what's the minimum the state has to uh, allow? That human freedom in a modern liberal society, sometimes human beings, human free agents, voluntarily orient themselves towards religious horizons and that this is not to be considered an unnatural act. If a civic society begins to believe that all religious behavior is intrinsically unreasonable, then what it needs to do is put in place an educational system to eradicate religious behavior. This was, of course, the great program of somewhere like Eastern Germany. And it, it largely succeeded in the sense that it eradicated 90% of the population, I mean, 90% of the population by the 1990s, sociologically speaking, claimed they were atheist. So you have the possibility to educate people uh, in view of it, uh, uh, the claim that it's simply unreasonable to be religious. Most of the time in our contemporary Northern Hemisphere, Western European, uh, North American model, there's a kind of libertarianism, a metaphysical libertarianism. So we say that at least the state should guarantee your right to think what you want about the meaning of life and can respect traditional um, forms of worship and religious bodies, especially Christians, Muslims, Jews, and perhaps other minorities that um, can have a role and function in society. So that's fairly minimal. A, more strong, a stronger claim would be to say, uh, because this pertains to the natural law and our religious relationship with God also helps us uh, strengthen and fortify other goods, then it is good to have a healthy religious society because a healthy religious society leads to a better uh, natural state. And here you could have something like, um, you know, what Benedict XVI talked about as a, a healthy laicite, a laicite or a secularism which allows, uh, wants the positive contribution of religious peoples. So what I've said there is that there are registers and that you can, you can see people who have the register that is merely more subjective uh, or, you know, metaphysically libertarian and people who have the register who think there's more stronger natural law. But I don't think you want to go to the register that's merely fideistic, where there's no anthropological basis. And of course, I think as a Catholic, I'd like to avoid the claim that religion is unnatural. But between those two more moderate positions, we can find room for negotiation and even differing theoretical views, but also mutual tolerance.